0: Our second scripture passage is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The Word of the Lord.
1: Quote is this Every human being must live for something, something must capture our imagination our heart's fundamental allegiance and hope. And modern advertising is very good at trying to capture that fundamental allegiance and hope. If you watch modern advertising and marketing, they are selling what? They're selling a lifestyle, not a product. They're selling an experience, not a good. For example, if you wanted to sell a watch, this is the picture you want to show. It's the picture of a private jet, a famous guy with his stylish thick clothes. He's been somewhere, he's going somewhere. This watch typifies what it is to be rich and famous, going everywhere with a bad haircut. <laughs> you too should want this. Second one is, uh, was shown on the Super Bowl. It started with Jennifer Aniston waking uh, on this airplane and trying to get a shower on the airplane and being laughed at by the stewards who said, airplane showers? What do you think this is? Emirates Airline? And the very next picture was her waking up relieved because she was flat asleep on her Emirates Airline flight bed. She checks her iPad, and the next scene has her at the Emirates Airline bar getting her martini, talking with a bartender saying, can't we just fly around forever? Possibly the best ad campaign though, is the one that is done by Corona, which is selling life at the beach. Often the scenes, at least in the, in the TV commercials, show, the hustle and bustle of rain and work and stress, and then you open up the Corona and all of a sudden you're at the beach. The experience and the lifestyle that advertising campaigns are selling is being rich or richer is better, and doing what you want is best. This was Solomon's fundamental quest, the thing he sought out to do. He sought to find the meaning of life, and one of the ways he did it was to live life to the full. We read in verse 1 of chapter 2 what he was going out to do. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He went after pleasure and to enjoy himself. Now, when that word pleasure is used, don't assume negative. Actually, that word pleasure is a good word in the Bible. It means delight and a joy. It's not necessarily something that's forbidden. It's the good stuff of life. Enjoy it. And then he goes on in verse 3 to talk about another way. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Anything that was a delight to my eyes, anything that was joyful, wine, partying, fun, I went after it, living life to the full to see if, if happiness and joy can be found there. Then he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to explain It's just the lavishness of the life that he lived and how much joy he was able to, to find. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools. I bought male and female slaves. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who was before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings. And I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. This is what's called an ancient Near Eastern royal testament. You can actually read lots of inscriptions and other ancient documents that do this sort of thing. It's a description of all the great things a king or an emperor had done. And there were two reasons for doing it. One was just boasting. It was flaunting your greatness. And the second was to immortalize yourself, to say, this is who I am, let me make record for all of you of all the amazing things that I have done. But if you read through this list and you read them with modern eyes, you would hear the descriptions of the way the the very rich and the very wealthy live even today. Homes here and there and everywhere, vacations in the greatest parts of the world. You want the best restaurants, you have a seat. You have a personal trainer, a personal chef, a slew of interns doing everything from shopping to getting you a cup of coffee. Anytime you want it, a pop star is at your house not just to hang out, but to perform for you. And you're always dating a supermodel. This is Solomon's life, everything. He sums it up in verse nine. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I became great, surpassed all who were before me. He actually was the most interesting man in the world. He would have been number one on the Forbes list of most wealthy people for his entire lifetime. And what did he do with that? He says in verse 10 And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Whatever my eyes desired, whatever I wanted. What's that like? Seriously, what's it like to dream of whatever you can and be able to have it? What would it be like to be able to do that? And is that what life is about? Now, look, we're very practical people. We say, no, we know that's not what life is about. We say that because we are in the DC area, which means success, power, and career are one of the things we're after and not that sort of lavish lifestyle. And many of us live in the Vienna area or places like that, and so family and community are very important to us as well. So this lavish, do-whatever-you-want lifestyle, we know that's not where it is. And yet, what is it that we do live for today? As modern Americans, our cultural assumption, the goal of the average American is, I should be able to do whatever makes me happy. I should be able to do whatever makes me happy. And because we are so wealthy and we have so much freedom and we are very individualistic, we are consumers who aim for more and feel like that will make us happy. Craig Bartholomew in his commentary on Ecclesiastes gets a little preachy, but he's actually insightful here when he says, consumerism is the dominant ideology of our age the quest for pleasure through possessions and experience. The heroes of Western culture have multiple houses, accumulate phenomenal wealth, and are able to buy all the pleasures of life they desire. So while it's true that maybe we aren't actually pursuing these things, the very people we tend to idolize most are the ones who live out this lifestyle. We are fascinated by the rich and the famous, Gates, Zuckerberg, Kardashian, Kanye, Beyoncé, T-Swizzle, J-Lo, J-Law, Brangelina. We make nicknames from people we have no idea who they are, just because they're famous. And we act as if we know them. Why? Because we've seen everything they're doing. Every movie, every set, every action, everything they're wearing, every place they're eating, where they vacation, where they have their houses, who they're dating, we know. And what does that say about our culture? Well, some of us aspire to live that way. We set a goal. I want to be like that too. Or we just live vicariously through them. Oh, I can imagine what that might be like. And then, of course, there's most of us who are much more realistic. We know that that sort of lifestyle is not going to happen, and we're not really going to live like that. We're not really aiming to be that famous and that rich. But, underneath what they're doing is not much different than what we do when we pursue pleasure to find happiness. And we do that not with palaces and gardens and concubines, but we find our own way of trying to find happiness through the pleasures of life. Adults, we're very good at this word, escape. We work really hard, and we live for the weekend. We work really hard, and we aim for the vacation. What, is it, what, what are we doing when we do that? When we're trying to think, this restaurant will bring me joy. Oh, I want to go to this one because I've heard about it. Or this sporting event. Or the next Friday night party with neighbors. Going to the beach, the perfect beach. The events, the vacations, the weekends that we live for. It's trying to escape which is a way of making pleasure and my happiness the center. As you get older, the draw is not just to escape, it's just to a life of ease. It's called retirement. Golf, shopping, eating dinner at 4 o'clock. I want to be able to do what I want to do with no responsibilities, just ease, life as I want it kids, you guys do things too. It's called entertainment. Seek to be entertained at all times. And really, here's the key word if you're a kid. It's the word fun, right? Everything has to be fun if you're a kid. That was fun. Oh, it's so fun. Is it going to be fun? Was that fun? That wasn't very fun. Everything is defined by fun or not fun. Fun. Because we're always trying to be entertained, tickled. Now look, the things that we pursue, the things we seek for our pleasure, for our escape, for our ease, for our entertainment, they're not actually all evil or sinful or bad. They're not. Remember, the word that Solomon uses for pleasure is a good word. It's delight and joy. But what Solomon is getting at and what we should be getting at is towards what end? Towards what end do we go for these things? Do the things that we enjoy, that we turn to, do they point us to God, so that we thank Him and praise Him for the good that He has given us and the way He has created us to enjoy them? Or are the things we turn to an end for themselves? I think we all look for happiness And very often we seek it in the simple pleasures of life or the things that to us try to bring us that happiness. Oh, it was a great party. Everyone was there. Totally got wasted. It was awesome. What are you going to do on Saturday? Oh, I'm going to be hanging out with friends, watching some football, play 2K15, eat Chipotle. That's going to be fun. Or even by ourselves. Why is it Why is it that we might turn to images of beautiful women? Or binge-watching season three and four. Let's go ahead and throw in five over three days straight. Or why might we find comfort in such desperate desire to have the sofa and a blanket and my novel, and a glass of wine, and nobody else around. Why do we turn to these things? We turn to them because we're looking for experiences and pleasure to find happiness. They become our savior, our means of achieving heaven. You know the proverbial genie with the lamp thing, right? Everyone knows this one, right? So there's a genie, he has a, the lamp, you rub it, and you get three wishes. What's the first wish you always wish for? More wishes, an infinity of wishes. Like, I would like an endless supply of wishes, so long as he doesn't forbid that one, that's your first wish, you get as many as you want. What if you actually had that? What if you had the genie and the lamp and infinity wishes, literally? anything you desired anything you dreamed of anything you could materialize anything you imagined materialized instantly what if you had that would you really be happy isn't this the fiction that satan feeds us in our heads if i just had that girlfriend I could just get into that college, if I just make it to this point in my career, if I just had everyone leave me alone. We all create our own vision of the perfect life, the perfect college, the perfect career, the perfect spouse, the perfect house, the perfect kids, the perfect vacation. And of course, what happens when you actually get it? It's never as good as you imagined. I'm going to credit Professor Dale Keene with the seven-year rule. The seven-year rule is this. Imagine your ideal house. Imagine your ideal house. If you actually get that house, will it still be your ideal house in seven years? You can try it with almost anything. You Imagine your perfect spouse, you finally get married. Seven years in, is she still your ideal spouse? Is he still the ideal guy? No. I mean, if any of you built your own dream house, even three years in, you'll realize, oh, I wish I would have done something different. We know this. We see it in ourselves, and we can see it easily in the most wealthy Generation X, or Gen X, are those people who were born between 1960 and 1980. They came into adulthood, teenage and adulthood, in the 80s and 90s. By the early 90s, a melancholy, if you would, had fallen over pop culture. It was called the grunge movement. It was was a, a style of music that was very depressed. And it started, or was led off, really, by the song Smells Like Teen Spirit by Kurt Cobain, where he wrote the tagline in 1991, here we are now, entertain us. The sum of the whole song was here we are now, entertain us. And when asked about the song later, he said it's about a a person my age, he was about 25 when he wrote it, it's a person my age trying to find purpose in life, trying to make an impact and realizing you can't, you never will, what's the use? So all that's left is to be cynical and have some fun. Here we are now, entertain us. He was depressed most of his life, became a heroin addict, and took a gun to his head in 1994. He had everything. He was the most popular musician around in the early 90s, and it wasn't enough. A similar sad story is that of Chris Farley, who was possibly one of the funniest men alive. And in the early 90s, he reached the height of his popularity and fame. He had made it on Saturday Night Live, which was his dream as a kid. He was rich, he was partying, he was having sex, he was getting drunk, he knew people all over the world, he could get in any party, and he was depressed. And on one bender, he took too many of different drugs, including cocaine, and killed himself because even as he got there, it wasn't enough. At the end of the 90s, there was a movie called Fight Club that might have epitomized the the young adult male angst and frustration at a world that didn't seem to match up. They had everything in their hands. They were the richest kids alive, and nothing was as good as it was promised in the commercials. The character played by... Brad Pitt summarized the thinking of the day as he preached to the other angry young men. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't, and we're slowly learning the fact. Life is depressing because even if you had it all, which you won't, it's not as good as you think it will be. You see, in real life and in fiction, these 90s icons found what Solomon realized thousands of years earlier if they would have just read. What did Solomon find? What was the sum of his life of wealth and pleasure? We see it in verse one and two. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you With pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Pleasure, laughter, and enjoyment amounts to vanity, madness, and uselessness. There is a meaninglessness to even the greatest of pleasures. In verse 11, he sums it up again. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But Solomon, what about the palaces and the vacation spots and the food you got to eat and the singers and the concubines Seriously? Everything you built and enjoyed, and all you can say is it was meaningless? It was like trying to grab hold of the wind? Nothing to be gained from it under the sun. Is that really the sum of it all? You see, he realized what Keller writes in Counterfeit Gods. Most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is all about the pursuit of happiness. We search endlessly for ways to acquire the things we desire. We never imagine that getting your heart's deepest desire might be the worst thing that ever happened to you. It's almost as if we are made for more. It's almost as if God allows us, even offers us everything on earth and says, go ahead, have it, have the vacations, and the parties, and the sex, and the houses, and the clothes, and the sports, and the TV, and the fiction, go ahead. But then he's also asking, as his spirit is working in our minds and in our hearts, and he's asking, is it all that you were looking for? does it actually satisfy you? Will it actually last? C.S. Lewis once again insightfully asks, if I find in my heart, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, that is, a spiritual and eternal world. We are made for more. The problem is that when it comes to things like our guilty pleasures, materialism, or even our vices and addictions, what do we try to do? We try to manage them. Keep them, you know, in in a good enough order and discipline. That's one of the reasons some people enter into Lenten disciplines, trying to keep in check their overly guilty pleasures. I'm not going to watch as much TV. I'm going to cut down to one glass of... We're trying to manage. I mean, sure, we know sometimes we, we do too much. We watch too much. We drink too much. Sure, we, we party too much. Sure, we buy too much. Sure, we try to find too much satisfaction in, in the next thing we're doing. But if we could just manage it, get it a little more under control. God doesn't want us to manage it. He wants us to exchange it. To seek, to trust, to worship him instead of the pleasures we are pursuing in his place. In John chapter 4, which was read earlier, Jesus is at a well in Samaria. The Samaritans were people who did not interact with the Jews. He's there in the middle of the day sitting at this well, and a woman comes down towards him. If you know the story, you know these things, but if you don't, I'm going to tell you about them. She comes down in the middle of the day, which was unusual. Women went down at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, and they always went in groups. She was not a part of those groups. There was a reason for that. She had a reputation where the other women in the community did not want to associate with her. It was also a reason why you wouldn't go down as a woman in the middle of the day because that's when travelers or shepherds would be at the well, and that was a dangerous place for a woman to be. The only reason you would go down to the well in the middle of the day is because you couldn't go down with the other women in town and because you were hoping to find a shepherd or a traveler. Jesus is sitting there, and by rabbinic law and order, he was not to interact with her. He himself was a rabbi and a Jew, faithful, In fact, there was actually written rules in that ancient world that what he should have done was this. As soon as he saw her coming towards the well, he should have gotten up, walked many paces away, turned his back, and let her draw water without giving her his face until she walked away. It was inappropriate. It was overly sensual. But he stayed there. And as she's walking towards the well, she's probably thinking, okay, the red light's going to go on now. Because by what comes up next, we realize that she is more than just a woman seeking water. Jesus says to her, can you draw some water for me? And the woman says, how is it that you, and there's a lot of innuendo in the phrasing that she uses. She basically says the word man three or four times and the word female or woman three or four times. How is it that you, a man, a Jewish man, a rabbi man, a man, 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 would ask of me, a woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman, 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 of water, what is it you really want? She's assuming a proposition. She's ready to make some money, to affirm her identity. Jesus gives her none of it. Instead, he gives her what she really needs, which is love and compassion and mercy and dignity. He speaks to her, which no man would have done. He says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. The water I am offering will quench your deepest thirst. It's not sex, it's not H2O, it is a spiritual life that is found in me. Then Jesus calls her to go and get her husband. And of course, this is where she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus knowingly says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. You see, he confronts her gods, her idols. You are turning to men. You are turning to sexuality. You are trying to find your identity in your beauty. Stop. Don't just manage that side of your life. Exchange it. Give it up. Give it over to me. And he calls her to himself, to offering her love, not the kind of love she'd ever had before. Nothing physical about it. Not even emotional in the way that we think about it. He offers her his love and says, you are made to worship me. I am your savior. And I want you to exchange them from me. Only in Jesus can she find her deepest thirst quenched. And it's the same for all of us. Jesus calls us to exchange our false gods of pleasure and happiness for the true one. And he makes it possible because the greatest exchange occurred on the cross. Jesus gives up. He sacrifices his ease and pleasure that we might be satisfied. On the cross, he dies for our sins so that we might live in his righteousness. On the cross, he endured hell, our hell, so that we might experience his paradise. The great exchange started with Jesus offering himself for us. So when he calls us to drop our gods for him, he's made it possible. We are made for pleasure. The deepest pleasure, however, is knowing and enjoying God. It's an audacious claim that there is a pleasure that is greater than sex, a joy greater than a UPS package that arrives, a comfort greater than a sofa and a novel, a happiness greater than a party, a satisfaction greater than watching every episode in one weekend. It's true. There's something better. C.S. Lewis put it in that phrase or that sentencing that you have probably heard. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. Now look, I've found that the exchange is not that easy at times. Constantly having to check my motivations and purposes in enjoying things in life. I do. And I have to ask, is this pointing me to God, causing me to worship him because of what it is? Or am I going for it by itself? There is a controlling nature to the pleasures we turn to. They are other gods that will seek to enslave us. We constantly need more and we're never satisfied with what we get. It's hard to make the exchange because sometimes it's just hard to believe that what God is offering is better than the things I can see or taste or touch or buy, the experiences I can have the people I can be with. Is he really better? I don't know. He is. But it's a constant battle. You know, at the very end, we know this to be true. Even if we had it all, everything our hearts could desire, we'd not be happy. So how long will we go around fooling with mud puddles. How long? Until we exchange our idols for the savior and seek our greatest pleasures in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have made us for delight and for joy, that you offer us created life as a foretaste of heaven. Forgive us for turning to these things in exchange for heaven, for trusting them as our savior. Give us eyes to see and hearts willing to exchange our false gods for the true one, the only one who can satisfy Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.
2: Drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of a thirst I felt within. Oh, praise Him, He has found me what my soul so long has created. praise Him. He has found me. What my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies So, so long has created